The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about war on drugs and how it affects us our families, and our privacy. And so I've been reading this really wonderful book called War on Us, How the War on Drugs and Myths About Addiction Have Created a War on All of Us. And this is by Colleen Cowles, J.D. And let me tell you a little bit about her background, which is interesting. Colleen Cowles is an attorney, an advocate, a mom with personal experience, and an author of this new book, which I just told you about. And um, she has 15 years of research and work with clients, um, which opened her eyes to the devastating impact that drugs have on health, family, safety, assets, and civil liberties of all citizens, even those who've never been tried as an, you know, for illegal drugs. And she is a former CEO of Cows Legal Systems, a legal software company where she trained attorneys nationwide and ultimately sold to Thomas Reuters that I use all their products as well. She applies her expertise in an online course entitled Protecting Your Assets When Addiction Finds Your Family. Colleen's goal is to protect all of our families from untreated or mistreated substance use disorder and from a dysfunctional drug policy that escalates the addiction, overdose, and mass incarceration, um, which puts us all at risk, really. She'll tell us a lot more about it. And you can get a free e-report, videos, and complimentary book chapters at www.waronus.com. You can also get to her from our website at privacypiracy.org where you can link, um, you know, just click on the link when you see her picture, her bio, the JPEG of her book, and just click over there and get to her website as well. So thank you so much, Colleen, for joining us from Wisconsin, my old alma mater. I'm a badger. <laughs> it is great to be here. Uh, thanks for uh, helping me to shed light on a, on a topic that's, that's really close to my heart and that impacts a lot more people than uh, even realize. Right. So you were, you know, uh, teaching other attorneys how to use legal software, and you were, you know, a mom and all things. How is it that this became an issue for you? We ended up with personal experience. Um, It it was interesting for us. We had a a son that, uh, since age seven, 
had pain issues and uh, was recently, finally, uh, diagnosed with an autoimmune uh, disease that causes chronic pain. Mm. But, you know, 20 years ago, they weren't diagnosing those issues. Uh, so not for lack of trying, but um, because, we, I mean, we, we, we went everywhere trying to find answers. Uh, but ultimately, uh, as a teenager, he began self-medicating. I uh, developed a, a drug issue and I uh, ended up in the uh, criminal justice system. Mm. So as an attorney, I really thought I had a basic understanding of addiction and of criminal law. And once we were personally involved, I realized I had absolutely no idea. Wow. Uh, so it, it, uh, that began the journey. You know, sometimes, you know, people get into something because of it in their own experience. You know, for me, getting into privacy was when somebody stole my identity, you know, and I found out that there were no laws and I had to help write laws. And then I realized identity theft was really the fallout from privacy. So when we have personal experiences with family or our own lives, that you know, that happens for a reason because someone like you will take the ball and run and really make some changes and, and try and help people to understand and help people in other families. So it's great that you've written this book. So, so how is it that you ended up writing this book? I started researching, uh, again, primarily for, for um, personal reasons so that I would really understand and to try to help myself understand what was really going on. And then I discovered, I, I just had no idea um, that, that uh, the drug law was, was so um, uh, heartless, dysfunctional, and impacted so many people. Now, I, when I started realizing that an undiagnosed illness and a couple of pills in a pocket um, could compromise freedom literally for a lifetime, mm. or that one arrest could prevent someone from renting a place for the rest of their life or wipe out privacy and civil liberties for, for years. Right. Um, and then I started realizing that, um, it, that we've expanded the war on, on drugs um, into people that, that don't have substance use issues. Um, in an effort and, and pretty much out of, out of fear and to a certain extent hysteria, uh, we're now restricting access to medications, uh, for example, to pain patients who have have been successfully using pain medications, some of them for decades, without issues. And now because of uh, 2016 guidelines uh, were rewritten for, um, for prescribing um, for physicians um, and, and the DEA started rating physicians and um, uh, journalists started, uh, in some cases, uh, kind of treating physicians who are dealing with, with uh, addiction or pain medications as uh, um, sinister you know, drug dealers. Right. Uh, and and the, the fallout from that's been really horrific and has impacted everyone's health. Right, right. So in, in the title of your book, you say myths, there are myths about addiction. Could you share with us some of those myths that maybe a lot of us who are listening started to believe? There's, there are a lot of them, and a lot of them I believed before I was, was involved with this. Um, one of the big ones is that addiction is a moral failing. And the fa that, that myth is really kind of the foundation of all of the issues. It's the foundation for the, the war on drugs and our punitive approach to uh, to trying to to control the the addiction overdose epidemic what I found is I, what really convinced me and made me start thinking about things differently was when I realized that our own government has uh, shared studies that 
that tell us that medications used in treatment of substance use disorder cut the risk of overdose in half and are actually the most effective and cost-effective treatment for addiction. Hmm. But if you think about that, if, if someone can, can return to a normal life, and there are people who have, have struggled with addiction for years who now on medications are able to return to normal lives, how many people do we have sitting in jail because they didn't have the, the appropriate medical treatment? Right. And when someone takes a medication, their morals aren't changing, but they are able to, to combat the, the addiction. So the, the whole concept that addiction is a moral failing is, is, uh, is a huge myth, uh, and it's, it's a, a really destructive one. Right. Um, and you talk another about, myth is that addiction yeah, is a choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, drug use is obviously a choice. I mean, if someone takes a Initially, pill with a needle mm-hmm. in their arm, it's, it's, right. it's a choice. Um, what was interesting for me is that, that it has been proven statistically that 10 to 20% of people who try a drug actually become addicted. And the reason for that range is it depends on whether we include cannabis in that because there's a, a about a 9% addiction rate with cannabis and more people use that. And so it depends on how you look at the statistics. But, but 10 to 20% will become addicted. So unless someone has never taken a drug, they really have no right to criticize because if someone has taken a drug and they've been fortunate enough not to have the chemical or emotional or environmental makeup that makes them uh, more more susceptible to addiction, right. um, then they're just lucky, <laughs> you know. So it's it's um, it, we we tend to believe that if we um, have tried a drug, if we haven't become addicted, then why shouldn't the next person just be able to say no? Right. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Right. Um, so addiction itself is not a choice. Right. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, we've seen the problems with addiction, even with alcohol. And I've had so many clients who've struggled with it for years, you know, and they don't want to be like that. But obviously, it, it is a chemical problem. It's a chemical problem. So Absolutely. You, and, there, and there are some, yeah. I, I don't want to ever say easy solutions, but there are some solutions. I mean, an example with, with uh, alcohol, there is a, a pill that can be taken um, prior to the time someone is going to go out and have some cocktails that has been incredibly successful uh, with people who have had alcohol issues long term and that pill makes them not want to drink more than than one or two drinks huh. um, but most people don't know about that because we're so um, focused on abstinence and and which is another myth abstinence is the only way to recovery it works for some, it doesn't work for others. Right. And so um, anytime I think we have a, a, a major problem and we try to create a one-size-fits-all solution, it's probably not going to be very successful. Yeah. Now, in your book, War on Drugs, uh, uh, War on All of Us, explain what you mean by it really jeopardizes the health of all citizens, including those of us who never even tried an illegal drug. What do you mean by all that? Well, part of it is, is what I touched on earlier as far as the pain patients not being able to access their medications. And right. literally we have thousands, uh, possibly hundreds of thousands of pain patients in the United States right now that are not able to access their, their pain medications. Some have been cut off cold turkey, um, putting them into withdrawal. And so we have had suicide rates for pain patients escalating. Uh, we've had 
people developing uh, severe health problems because their pain is no longer controlled. Mm -hmm. And some of them have resorted to going to the streets. So we're turning pain patients into criminals so that they can obtain their medications. And that in turn makes them more uh, at at risk for for overdose because of the tainted uh, uh, medications that they're able to get on the street. Right. so it's 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 but it, the the guidelines and even the authors of those new 2016 prescribing guidelines have written articles saying this is not what we meant. Mm. Um, it, it, there was never an intention to have stage four cancer patients deprived of of medications. Um, some people are going through surgery without medication. Oh my god! <laughs> um, and uh, in fact, there was there was a an episode of the Good Doctor this last week that just. It drove me crazy. They they uh, they had a an instance of a woman who had been um, had had an addiction issue twelve years before, had been in recovery for twelve years, and now she was so afraid to take the pain medications that that she went through surgery without without medications. Mm. All of that is complete fallacy. Uh, the overdose rate of patients that are prescribed uh, uh, opioids from their physician is less than one percent. Yeah. And yet we've got all of these policies now that are, are really harming people. Uh, we have states that are, are now not allowing scripts for uh, controlled substances, which is, is pain medications, right. um, for more than some of them are seven days, some of them are three days. Um, the results of that are, are crazy. People can't travel because they can't get their medications. Mm. Uh, in Florida, the, the state says that prior to, to hurricane season, you should always have 14 days of your medications. But with their pain medications, they won't allow anything more than three days. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, mm. and these are people that a lot of times have trouble, you know, with, with, uh, um, with being able to get to a pharmacy um, right. because of, of their pain and severe um, you know, medical issues. Mm. Um, and now we put the DEA in control of how many medications can be manufactured. So the FDA is telling us that there are shortages of critical care and palliative medications, and yet the DNA or the DEA has announced that their quotas will decrease the allowed production of opioids by 53% from 2016 to, to now. So we're creating shortages of medications that are needed when they're used in, in the right circumstances. Right, uh, right. We also are, are, we've lost years of, research on substances that for all of us could potentially create a uh, cure uh, major health issues. Um, cannabis is a good example of that. And schedule one for cannabis, um, saying that there is no medicinal uh, value whatsoever. And that stopped, um, that, that stopped funding and accessibility of, of medical research that you know, could be helping a lot of people. Exactly. Uh, Exactly, and then we look at the homelessness and the and the uh, public health issues. Uh, when we don't treat addiction and instead uh, throw people uh, in in cages, basically for having a, a health issue, we're escalating Hep C and, and Hep B. We're escalating HIV, um, escalating homelessness, um, and as those diseases escalate. Um, it also makes it harder for everyone to access health care because it's a, it's a glut on the health care system. Right. So we're, we're all at risk. Yeah. Now, you also talk about the impact of the war on drugs on the privacy of our medical records. Why don't you uh, address that? 
This is an example of one of those ideas that in theory sounds good in an application can be horrendous. Um, the, the, uh, nearly all states now have uh, prescription drug monitoring programs, uh, referred to as PDMPs, mm. that mandate that the physicians report on any of the prescriptions for controlled substances. So there's a huge database um, that, mm. that holds all of the information, on, you know, the medical information on patients. Um, so the logic was to, to minimize the risk of doctor shopping. The problem is that if someone, um, there, it, it, it tags how many doctors someone goes to. So if someone moves and they need a different doctor, if their doctor decides not to be in, in the, uh, that business anymore, uh, if uh, there can be any number of reasons that you go to several different doctors. Some are generalists, some are, are, are uh, specialists. But for every one of those doctors that's seen, that's a tick on your record. Mm-hmm. And if there are too many notes on your record that you've gone to too many physicians, you may be cut off um, as a, a drug seeker. Wow. Um, the other thing that's really frightening is that that was supposed to be medical records for medical purposes to serve the doctors that are serving the patients. Right. Um, but the DEA, law enforcement, even your veterinarian has access to those records. Um, and we've got some states that are fighting that. New Hampshire is fighting the DEA's mandate to disclose those records. And the DEA actually had the audacity to claim that People have no reasonable expectation of privacy in their prescription records. Um, and you're, you're probably more, more familiar <laughs> with this than I am, Mari, but they're using the third-party doctrine saying, well, since pharmacists are third parties and they know about your prescriptions, therefore there's no right of privacy oh for God. your medical records. And this is craziness. <laughs> it is craziness. Yeah. And, you know, if, if those um, records are shared, like you said, with law enforcement, all of a sudden you might be considered a, a druggie or they might investigate you because they're thinking, oh, my goodness, they might be selling that drug or whatever, because if they're going to different doctors, that's Absolutely. Insanity. I mean, what other reason could the DEA want to be able to access those records? It's right. absolutely to go after people right. um, and to, to target physicians. And, you know, the, the physician that is trying to help pain patients or people with substance use disorder can be flagged. So the area of medicine that we really, really need physicians to be practicing, um, they are exodusing. I mean, there's a mass exodus of, of doctors from those um, practice areas yeah. because they don't want to put themselves at, at risk. Right, right. Um, just imagine. Records, the other problem is with probation. Um, when mm-hmm. someone is pro- on probation, you can be on probation for two, three years because you had a pill in your pocket, and in some areas mm-hmm. because you had a joint. And uh, once you're on probation, one of the mandates that's very typical uh, with probation, and the, the person on probation is has to sign it or they're going to go to jail, on, they sign off on the privacy for their medical records. So those on probation um, are, are basically saying my counseling records, if I'm in treatment, can be sent to my probation officer. Uh, my medical records can be sent to my probation officer. So who is going to sh- actually share information with their counselor when they know that it can be sent to the person who can put them in jail? Right, right. 
And and when you think about the insurance company, right? Because you're getting the the insurance company is going to know because you're going to be asking for reimbursement or you're going to ask mm-hmm. that the, that they pay for it. So, who is the insurance company paying? Uh, you know, uh, sharing this with, or are they going to tell you that you're not going to be insured? You know, something mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's pervasive. Now, in, in well, sure- and even parents lose their privacy if a, if a child is on probation. And the child is residing with that parent, which I would think we'd want to promote to give some stability and and to get someone back on the right path. Right. But that that allows the probation agents to stop in for inspections, and uh, uh, so the parents are are giving up their um, um oh, their privacy, their privacy right. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, Big Brother watching here. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. In Chapter 18 of your book, you say that the U.S. government seizes more assets from citizens than all reported burglaries combined. And that just kind of surprised me. Can you talk about how that happens? Yes. And I have to say that California is on the right end of this. Um, They now um, uh, require uh, an actual conviction before they can seize assets. Right. But that is not the case in, you know, in, in nearly all states. We are seeing some, some progress in those areas, and, and there are states that are, are making it more difficult. But the numbers are frightening. Uh, in 2017, the government seized $8.2 billion in assets. And, and those statistics are a couple of years old, but it, it it's just that the statistics aren't out yet. It's not that right. we have had a, a you know major drop in in uh, <laughs> um, in seizures, unfortunately. Right. But in, in 2017, 8.2 billion in assets seized by the government. Victims of burglary in that same year lost 3.4 billion. So think about that. We've got the government stealing more assets from us, more than twice as many assets as all burglaries combined. Oh. And in most jurisdictions. I, I, the, there is no requirement of conviction. There isn't even a, con, a, a requirement of charges being filed um, as long as an asset is suspected of being involved in a crime. So that can be a parent's home because the child is suspected of possessing drugs. Right. Um, I, and in some jurisdictions, the property is presumed to be uh, guilty, so the owner actually has to provide to provide proof of innocence. Now, that's a real trick. How do you yeah. provide proof of of innocence and then with all of this there's financial incentives for law enforcement because the assets that are seized a percentage of that can be retained by the law enforcement agencies so it helps with their budgets so sometimes when we when we wonder why so much emphasis is put on on uh uh going after people for basic drug possession when we're we're when we have a, a huge rate of, of unsolved um, murders and, right. and rapes and, and those kinds of things, but the incentives are there for law enforcement to go after uh, the drug possession cases, partly because of civil asset forfeiture and then partly because there are a lot of grants and there's a lot of money and a lot of incentives for them to focus on that rather than the crimes that are really harming victims. Right. So, you know, you, you point out that the war on drugs has really been ineffective. So what are you suggesting that we do? I think the first thing is to keep them alive. And a lot of that is, is harm reduction methods. Um, I'm convinced that, that all of us should be carrying naloxone. Trade name is Narcan. It's just a, a, a nasal spray 
that um, that if someone is is overdosing, um, they it will it will save their life. Right. Um, and it's it's heartbreaking for me to to hear some some authorities and some people who say, well, those lives aren't aren't worth saving. Mm. Um, one of the joys of my my life has been seeing a lot of the people that went through this process. Uh, with our son and seeing them develop into incredible human beings, uh, and the the idea that if someone has a, an addiction issue, somehow they're they're uh, uh, worthless. Than, yeah, you know, their <laughs> life is less important in some way is is just Ludicrous. really distressing. Yeah. Um, but the the carrying the nasal spray can can be um, so important um, because usually those. There's, the timing is so important, uh, and if someone is there um, with Narcan when it's needed, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really important. Um, there are fentanyl test strips. I mean, part of the issue that we have now is that because of the war on drugs, um, there's incentive for the cartels and the, the dealers um, to, to make the, the drugs more concentrated because mm. it's easier to smuggle. Wow. So we have we now have fentanyl in in all types of drugs. So it's not just opiates that opiates that that uh, you need Narcan for. Fentanyl is an opiate, and fentanyl is in meth. It's in cocaine. It's in you know it's it's in a lot of different things. And if Narcan is used um, for somebody, um, it's not going to hurt them if if they're not if the overdose isn't because of an opioid, but it can save their life. Um, but with the fentanyl test strips, they're like two dollars. I mean, that could have saved Prince's life for $2 if wow. it had a test strip um, because it, it will test a drug and tell someone whether there is an, in, uh, fentanyl in it. Mm. Um, as far as overall policies, if we can just accept addiction as a medical issue and treat it like we treat other medical issues, um, stop arresting people, um, basically legalize um, so that, and, and I'm not a proponent of drug use, but we, we've spent over a trillion dollars on trying to control supply and using punitive um, sanctions. Right. And it, it, the United States now, after that more than trillion dollars of expenditures, has the highest drug use rates, the highest overdose rates, and the highest incarceration rates in the world. So it's obviously not working. So if we took the money that we spend on prosecution and incarceration and probation and all of these things that aren't working and offered individualized medical care, and that's, that's, that's not just 12-step peer uh, support meetings. Those work for some people. But most people with drug issues have untreated uh, either emotional or physical medical issues that need treatment. So if we, if we take the the uh, the punitive aspects and that's basically government sanctioned stigma so if we if we just uh, convert uh, to a public health approach we know that works um, based on what some other jurisdictions have done and uh, and even in this country and in the areas where police are are refusing to arrest for drug possession uh, we've, we've seen uh, real headway being made um, so we, we have the answers it's just a matter of, of whether we're we're willing to accept them. Um, and on an individual basis, um, I, I, I think if any of us can minimize the stigma, if you're an employer, give people an opportunity. If you're a landlord, allow them to rent. Um, for any one of us, even language, um, uh, you know, we don't call someone with leukemia a cancer. 
Right, um, but right. we call someone with a substance use issue an addict. Um, it's very, very stigmatizing. Um, we, we refer to people who, um, who aren't using drugs at, at the time as clean. Well, that infers that they're dirty when, right. when they are um, using, um, not using drugs. So, um, and it, it also um, stigmatizes use of medications for treatment. Um, and then just getting education and voting strategically um, and not necessarily on a partisan level, but just asking politicians, is this, is this program that you're wanting to promote or spend money on, is this going to further stigmatize? Um, is it going to punish people with substance use disorder? Um, or is it going to offer health services to people who need it? Right. And we really need to do more for the people who have these emotional issues and, and mental issues because we don't even have community mental health like we used to have in, in, even in California. They just don't have it. And so a lot of those issues really could be resolved if we had better community mental health. Uh, and, and we just don't have that. I mean, our whole health industry is falling apart and drugs that people need just for seizures, for example, you know, we have a friend that he ha- he was paying $10 copay, and now it's like a $100 copay, which he can't even afford. So, yeah. you know, I mean, we, we have a whole, we have to have a whole system that we look at and, and change policy. So I think we better run you for office next, huh? I want to have people know that they can get this book, War on Us, How the War on Drugs and Myths About Addiction Have Created a War on All of Us, and they can go to waronus.com, correct? That's correct. Okay. Thanks so much, Murray. Okay, Colleen, take care. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.